From the Center for the Study and Teaching of Writing at The Ohio State University, this is Writer's Talk. I'm Doug Dangler. Very often, listeners come up to me and say, we love Writer's Talk, Doug, but where can we hear more about emus? So today is the show for these listeners, with guest host OSU professor Nicole Kraft speaking with Peabody and Emmy Award-winning correspondent and best-selling author Judy Muller, whose recent book, Emus, Loose and Egnar, Big Stories from Small Towns, covers hyperlocal journalism, the future of journalism, and of course, emus. After that, OSU student Ben Glass reviews OSU alum Donald Ray Pollock's debut novel, The Devil All the Time. Stay tuned for Writer's Talk. This is Nicole Kraft. Judy Muller starts her new book, Emus, Loose, and Egnar, Big Stories from Small Towns, by telling readers journalism is not dead. That's good news for journalists, but Muller feels it's also good news for America, which has long relied on a free press to preserve democracy. By examining community newspapers from Montana to Martha's Vineyard, Muller, an associate professor at USC's Annenberg School of Communication and Journalism, and herself a veteran community journalist, shows the men and women keeping the First Amendment alive. She joins us today on Writer's Talk. Judy, you start the book by saying that journalism isn't dead. Um, a lot of journalists are going to be very pleased to hear that. But <laughs> why, why should Americans be glad to hear that in general? Americans ought to be glad to hear it because even though journalists sometimes get a bad rap, uh, they represent the American citizen's right to know. And uh, without a free press, you don't have a very vibrant democracy. I mean, that sounds very corny, but it's absolutely true. And uh, I know with all the tabloid cessationalism that goes along on, people forget that, but it's true. And I thought it was such good news that these small papers across the country are so vibrant, so healthy, and so important. You started your career at a small-town paper. Can you tell us a little bit about that and um, how it, it shaped your view of journalism? Yes. The Colonial News in Freehold, New Jersey, and it was my first job in journalism. And we didn't get paid much. It was a small staff. It's one of those kinds of papers that a lot of people just use at the bottom of the birdcage, you know. But right. <laughs> we were very proud of it. And I, I remember just getting hooked on the whole idea of telling the truth, holding public officials accountable. Um, and in New Jersey, there's just this, it's rife with public officials who need to be held accountable. So it was really fertile ground for a young journalist, and it was so much fun. And I think I really got the bug right there. You know, mainstream media has really been grabbing a hold of this idea of hyperlocalism. It, it's it's a, a real buzzword out there. And, of course, the New York Times is, has endeavored into it. AOL has launched Patch, and there's a variety of other um, projects out there that, that use that term hyperlocal. But you're saying with this book that hyperlocal has been around as long as we've had community newspapers. So what's the deal now? Why are we? Uh, why is this becoming such a, a prominent issue when we've had it all along? Well, I think what's... What's ironic is hyperlocalism is the new buzzword uh, among mainstream media. We've got to be more hyperlocal and go in these communities that are underserved. And, <laughs> but the truth is, community newspapers, weekly newspapers in America, and I'm talking about small towns now, under 30,000 circulation, but smaller even than my book, um, they've been hyperlocal for years. That's their market. And what that means is they have a captive audience. These people can't get their news anywhere else. Nobody else cares about what's happening in their town. They've got a captive uh, audience in terms of advertisers. And so it really is a business model that works. You're not going to get rich doing it, but you can live in a nice place, do your craft, 
be important, glue the community together. So I think a lot of mainstream media is looking at that business model and thinking, well, how do we do that? How do we create news that people can't get anywhere else? And, uh, you know, they've already got it out there. It's a web focus now, though, certainly with the, with the efforts uh, of, of Patch um, and others like it. Does that matter? Patch.com is an interesting model, um, and I would hesitate to denigrate it because I have a lot of journalism students who may be getting jobs with Patch. And so I encourage all the voices we can get out there uh, doing journalism. But Patch is better in larger towns, like 30,000 and up. And the reason for that is you can't airdrop an editor into a town where they have not lived before. One of the things I found in covering these papers is that it takes a while to establish trust. And by a while, I mean maybe you have to live there for 20 years before people trust you to tell their stories to. And you can't just bring somebody in on an Internet site, say we're here to you know, be a community digital paper for you, and expect them to go along. Um, it worked if the person's already there. Now, these weekly newspapers are not stupid. They've, they've watched what's going on with mainstream media, and they charge for their websites. They don't give it away. So and people are willing to pay because they can't get it anywhere else. So Patch has a bit of a problem getting into that area. Um, I think they'll do better in the larger suburbs, which is what they seem to be doing now. You mentioned uh, 30,000 as a number and the fact that Patch would need to look at a, a larger demographic uh, of readership. The newspapers you feature are small. I mean, weeklies that are in the hundreds to the low thousands in their circulation. What do you feel is the right size for a community newspaper of the future? And, and where does that leave, you know, these 20,000 to 50,000 dailies that we've had for so long? i got to tell you, I didn't write this book as a look at business and the market. I mean, I really wasn't even interested in that. It just happened to be an interesting byproduct of what I found. I was more interested in the stories people tell. I, I find small-town newspapers charming, some of the editors courageous, and that's really what I wanted to go out and, and talk about was the stories. So I'm not really an expert on what business model works for what, and I think anybody who is right now is just dreaming because it's all in such flux. We're going through a major revolution uh, in journalism akin to the printing press development. This digital news is so overwhelmingly revolutionary that if anybody tells you they know what the future holds, they're kidding themselves and you. From the experiences you had with the editors you met, where do you see the, the digital nature of things taking these particular newspapers? Well, the small-time weeklies, as I said, are not giving it away for free. They charge for their web content. Now, that said, they don't have to worry so much in these smaller towns about Craigslist yet. Craigslist, as you know, is free classified advertising, and the mainstream media, the big dailies, fail to see the threat from Craigslist early on. I think they were a bit arrogant about that. And that was one of the huge losses in revenue for them. So I think the small weeklies are looking at that. They've, they've sort of seen the shot across the bow, but they don't necessarily rely only on classifieds for their revenue. They rely on the local grocery store, which gives them the coupons for the inserts to clip, you know, that kind of thing. They rely on legal advertising um, from the town and the county. So I, I think they're in better shape, in a way, than the big dailies were. 
You mentioned a second ago about the wonderful stories that these editors had to share with you. And, and of course, the, the title of the book alone represents one of those stories, Emus, Luce, and Egnar, um, Big Stories from Small Towns. The book is about community journalism, but you don't even mention that in the title. Was that by design? The title, Emus, Luce, and Egnar, is uh, an item from a police blogger in a little paper in Colorado, Dove Creek Press, where, and it's a uh, covering a town called Egnar, which is range spelled backwards. The original settlers wanted range, but it was taken, so they spelled it backwards, and it's Egnar. And this was a, a, a situation where a rancher some years ago was raising emus, and like all police blotter items, you kind of have to read between the lines because not everything's explained. But as I understand it, he lost control of his flock of emus. They're big ostrich-like birds, as some people may know that are raised for their meat and their oil. And they got out. And a lot of his neighbors apparently didn't know he was raising emus. So when they see some prehistoric-like creature running across their pastures at night under the full moon, you know, they either stop drinking immediately or they call the sheriff, which is what happened. The sheriff's dispatcher got a lot of calls about these strange creatures running around. And so for three weeks running, this was a regular item in their police water. And I, it's kind of a, te- a cheap tease for a title, but... One of the things that sells these local papers is the police blotter material. It's the best stuff in the papers, where we all look first to find out what's really going on. And the other two uh, legs of that three-legged stool that hold up community papers are high school sports, which are huge to a community, and obituaries. Um, So the high school sports, as long as there are refrigerator magnets, I say, there will be weekly newspapers because everybody wants to click and put that picture up of their son or daughter winning whatever sport and captured in the weekly newspaper. They will get it nowhere else. You write about one editor who crusades against an emissions plant and um, another who actually serves on the town council where he is a newspaper editor. It brings into question the objectivity of some of these community newspaper editors. What was your take on that as you were researching this book? What I what I found was that, and this is in a chapter called "Too Close for Comfort." It's pretty tough to write about the people you live next door to. For most reporters, you know, we write about people we hear drop in and out of the town. That was true for me when I was at ABC News, I, you know, covering stories all over the country. Generally speaking, I didn't have to wake up the next morning and face the people I was writing about. Not that I would be afraid to, but quite frankly, it's much tougher when you're in a small town, and. I think that covering the news that way requires so many decisions of courage. And in that crucible of, do I want to be liked or do I want to tell the truth? So many of these editors come down on the side of the truth at, at risk of their you know, personal popularity, um, their family's popularity. I talked to editors who had bullets shot through the windows of their offices. One office a uh, newspaper office in Kentucky was burned down by coal mine thugs who were upset about their coverage of uh, coal mine um, uh, corruption. And that's true courage. I don't know why to have it. So the editor you're talking about up in Concrete, Washington, who's a charming guy who just opened the paper up there, uh, Concrete, cementing the future for 100 years. I love that slogan. <laughs> um, and he was on the city council or town council when he bought the newspaper, and he doesn't want to give it up. And I've talked to Jason Miller since that happened, and he 
he what he does is he assigns any story covering council matters to a reporter. But I still think it's not the best practice. And, you know, he knows what I think. But so far, he's managed to do a pretty fair job of covering the events in that town. There were some examples, though, specifically the editor in Anderson, California, who seemed to have an agenda, I'll say, and and be his paper sort of leaned in the direction of issues that he felt were important, as opposed to maybe an objective view of the um, the community <laughs> in general. So, That's- what do you? Yeah. How, how do you feel, you know, community news is, is there to serve the community, but it also is being led by one person for the most part or, or a very small handful of people. And, and objectivity does seem to be one of the things that maybe is sacrificed in that sense. I love Bruce Anderson of the Anderson Valley Advertiser in Boonville, California. He's such a great writer, but he falls under that chapter I have called curmudgeons. He's an advocacy journalist. He's a polemicist. He has a definite point of view. And his whole role in life is to give voice to the voiceless, which is a time-honored tradition in journalism. Um, and he does, in fairness, give tremendous room for letters to the editor. Uh, if people object to what he writes, and many people do, he lets them rant on forever. So they get their side in. He's just not the one who gives it. So it's a different kind of journalism. I enjoy him immensely. He's so popular uh, that he even has subscriptions overseas. His writing is so wonderful. So um, I, I think that there's room for all kinds of voices out there, which is really what the blogosphere is proving. Um, we have room now for all kinds of writers and, and opinion makers and commentators and journalists. And I really think it's a very exciting time. For journalism in this country. I love the quote in your book. One editor says, a small town editor can serve to pull the community together or tear it apart. You have to make the decision right now about what kind of editor you'll be. What, If you could advocate for, for one type of editor, what would it be from the research that you've done? I think that the best papers and the best editors are the ones who tell the truth. Their first obligation is to the truth and to reporting one editor said to me, I think there's no higher calling than telling people how their tax dollars are being spent. Um, that's, that's the truth that they're allegiant to, not the biggest guy in town, not some syrupy, sweet idea of, of community relations. It's about the truth. And any community is, is better served and holds together better if they know the truth about what's going on in their town. Um, but there are ways to spin that. I mean, the, the editor who quoted that um, believes in really spinning a story, burying a lead. You get the truth, but you have to know how to decode it. And you have to know how to read the piece in order to find out the truth, which is often buried at the bottom of the story, because they just are so worried about sensitivities in town. That's not my favorite kind of writing, but it is... Uh, a type of writing you get in small towns where people are very, very sensitive um, to the truth being told about them. You're listening to Writer's Talk from The Ohio State University with guest host OSU professor Nicole Kraft and her guest, best-selling author Judy Muller. Writer's Talk is a co-production of the Center for the Study and Teaching of Writing at The Ohio State University and The Ohio Channel, where you can watch some of our interviews by visiting www.ohiochannel.org or by checking your local television listings for broadcast times on The Ohio Channel. Now, 
Back to Nicole Kraft and Judy Muller discussing the difficulties of being a small-town journalist. I was amazed at the schedules that you described from some of these editors who they write, they edit, they lay out, they shoot photos, they sell ads, they pick up the paper from the printer at 1.30 and then <laughs> tie it up to disseminate. I mean, how do you think community newspaper editors can keep that up? And is that going to be a, a hindrance when we look at the future of community papers? You no, know, I actually, they're getting more and more resumes from uh, graduates of journalism schools and from people who've been downsized from mainstream papers. It's pretty exciting, actually. But I do think you have to go into it with your eyes open. This is hard work. You get, like, one day a week off. Um, you may get one week a year, if you're the editor or the publisher, um, off. And, and even then, it's hard because it's relentless. It's around the clock. People want their paper. They want it on time. So if you go into this, it's probably a good idea, and I can't believe I'm saying this, to be married. <laughs> you know, uh, I found that most of the happiest editors were people who had a partner who was either in the business with them or who they could come home to and laugh this stuff off because it's a lonely job if you're out there telling the truth about your neighbors, I mean, in a good way, but it still can be a lonely job if you come home to an empty house and have to start all over again the next day. I have found that the, the happiest people were the ones who seemed to be uh, uh, coupled <laughs> You cited uh, NPR's Howard Burkus, um, that he credited the uh, Kentucky paper, The Mountain Eagle, with helping to start Lyndon Johnson's War on Poverty. Yeah. Can you tell us a little bit about that? Because it seems like it's a perfect example of the importance of community news. The Mountain Eagle, um, run by the Gish family, and their son, Ben Gish, now runs it, um, is an amazing paper and, and one that ought to be studied by all future reporters. Um, their slogan is, the Mountain Eagle, it screams, and it did. And through the late 50s, early 60s, the Mountain Eagle, run by Pat and Tom Gish, a husband and wife team, uh, took on the Appalachian coal miner companies, uh, coal companies, and, uh, and all the poverty that was just rampant in the hollows of Appalachia, and really still is, um, and because of their very brave reporting, um, it caught the eye of bigger journalists. Homer Biggert from the New York Times came down. Charles Kuralt came down. Um, and that coverage then caught the eye of Lyndon Johnson, the, uh, then the president, who, whose war on poverty is really uh, linked to the reporting by, originally, the Mountain Eagle. And I, so I think that even though you're a small weekly paper in a small place, you can have tremendous impact outside of your own little area. Um, but the, the Gishes are the ones who had their newspaper office burned down. And it turns out the police at first tried to blame their son. They said he was smoking marijuana in the back of the, you know, of course, this was just not true at all. And it turned out that one of the coal companies had hired a rogue cop to set the place on fire. So this rogue cop was never prosecuted. He never went to jail. Nobody ever did. But the Gishes, and this is the important lesson in this story, they went home, they got all their kids to help, they got out the typewriters in their home, and they put out a version of the Mountain Eagle the next week. They were not about to be cowed by these thugs. And the slogan that week said, the Mountain Eagle, it still screams. 
What's your favorite story in this book? What was the one you most enjoyed uh, retelling us? I have to say that my favorite story was the one in Hardin, Montana, which I just happened to luck into because I, I thought, well, I was looking for a town with competing newspapers, and they had three in a 25-square-mile area. The white paper, I say that because there's an Indian paper, uh, the crows, um, and then this other one, which is sort of the tabloid of the town, the original briefs, which has a picture of underwear on its masthead. Um, and this is in the, uh, near the Custer Battlefield, a uh, little bighorn. Um, and I'd always wanted to see that, so I thought, oh, this is a perfect, I'll, I'll go up. Well, the fight um, between these and among these three papers sort of resembled the original Custer battle. And when I came in uh, to town, they were getting ready for the annual reenactment of the Custer battle, which they do every year, but there are two reenactments. The Crows put on one, and the white town of Hardin, I'm, I'm saying that because it's a very racist r- r- area, uh, both sides, um, put on their own reenactment, and Custer dies, of course, in both reenactments, but they're fighting for tourist do- dollars at this point. And uh, they had built... Hardin had built a prison, floated revenue bonds for more than $20 million to build a detention center. But they forgot to get a contract for prisoners before they did it. Their consultant said, oh, if you build it, they will come. They didn't. So they were stuck with this empty prison trying to foist this off somewhere. And this became, this prison story, sort of the, the Rorschach test for everything in that town and everything that was written in the papers. And I, I think that's my favorite chapter because it's such an amazing tale. What do you want people to take away from this book? And I say I ask that about both readers and journalists, the ones that are practicing today and the ones to come. I hope people take away the power of the written word, even in the smallest uh, place. And I, and I hope that they take away the power of the First Amendment and really value what it means to people. When a town loses its paper, it really loses the glue that holds the community together. I heard that over and over again. It's inspiring to talk to these people who so powerfully believe in what they're doing and why. Um, when I went up to interview Jason Miller up in Concrete, Washington, he'd call and ask if I'd be in his float on Cascade Day's parade time, which I thought was hysterical. So there I am throwing newspapers to the crowd from his truck. And people were running up to him and crying and shaking his hand and saying, thank you for bringing our paper back. They hadn't had a paper in almost 20 years there. And that's how heartfelt it was. They felt so isolated until he did that. So I, I really think that uh, that's what I want people to hear. It's a bit of a good news story about journalism, which we don't have much anymore. What would you like journalists to know about this? They have a certain idea, especially the students that you're sending forth from Annenberg, the students we send forth here at Ohio State. They have a view of what they think journalism will be. What would you like for them to know? I'd like them to know that if you have the right motive, if you're going into this profession with the right standards and practices and principles, then there's work out there for you. And in this time of entrepreneurial journalism, because certainly the old path of I'll start here and I'll work my way up to the network, I'll work my way up to the New York Times, that's not necessarily the path that people follow anymore, nor do they want to. There's a lot of jobs out there. There are some 8,000 good weekly newspapers out there in beautiful places sometimes who would welcome 
an excellent reporter right out of J school. Um, you can, you know, really make your mistakes there. You can get good. You might even stay. Um, you can earn enough to make a living in a beautiful place. And you can practice your craft in a way that's really appreciated by the people who are reading you. And I'll never forget how I felt writing for that small weekly in, in Freehold, New Jersey. It, it stays with me always. Um, so I think that's a good place to start. Well, Judy, I can't thank you enough for being with us on Writer's Talk. It has been a pleasure speaking with you. It's been wonderful. Thank you. OSU student Ben Glass is in the Ohio State's Master's in Fine Arts program for poetry, and he's an avid reader and commentator on modern fiction, as you'll soon hear. Donald Ray Pollock, an Ohio State alumnus, debuted his first book in 2008, a short story collection called Knock'em Stiff, which hit the literary scene like a destruction derby car. The graphic, grotesque stories compelled and wowed many readers, and probably repelled just as many. His new novel, The Devil All the Time, continues this style, but gives a more holistic portrait of human depravity and will. Set in the small towns of Ohio and West Virginia, the novel begins with Willard Russell returning from combat in the Pacific Theater of World War II, and he struggles to deal with the horrifying event there. He meets Charlotte, a beautiful waitress, and they marry and have a son named Arvin. Willard and Arvin are the focal point of the novel, and both must deal with Charlotte's cancer as it devours her from the inside. Willard seeks to heal his wife by building a backwoods altar, covering it constantly with blood from animals he's bought or found to sacrifice. Little Arvin suffers through this, and the extremity of his father's action shocks, but Willard's intense devotion is also compelling. The novel progresses toward the Vietnam era, and other macabre characters join the story. One plotline follows Roy and Theodore, a pair of traveling evangelists capable of terrible brutality. They put on grandiose displays of revival faith where Roy dumps spiders over his head, and Theodore is bound to a wheelchair because he drank poison to prove God protects his faithful. There's also Sandy and Carl, a couple who trap hitchhikers to toy with and eventually kill. There's Lee Bodecker, a crooked sheriff who's faithful to his family, even when he learns their terrible secrets. And Preston Teagarden, a new preacher in town, whose lust for teenage girls outweighs his faith. Whenever we meet these characters, Pollock's colorful description enlivens them, while also hinting toward deeper psychology and menace. Arvin grows into his adolescence, and as all the plot lines converge, the novel summons the characteristics of a thriller. I couldn't stop reading as the serial killers, the preacher duo, the crooked sheriff, the perverted preacher, and Arvin wound toward each other with the ferocity of asteroids on a collision course. These characters, no matter how perverse, feel genuine. Arvin is shrewdly defensive toward anyone who hurts him or those he cares for, and this gets him in trouble. And we can pity the evangelist Roy because his actions lack any groundedness in the religion he wants so badly to thrive within. The great Southern writer Flannery O'Connor said of grotesque characters, their fictional qualities lean away from typical social patterns toward mystery and the unexpected. I never questioned why any character did what he or she does, though I wondered. 
but wonder is a form of the mystery O'Connor celebrates. How could Willard amass a fetid altar of rotting corpses? How could Sandy go along with her husband's murderous fetish? Why do these characters do any of the freakish things they do? To be able to recognize a freak, O'Connor says, you have to have some conception of the whole man. Pollock's vision plumbs the depths of man's selfishness, graciousness, depravity, and redemption. He convinces us, with exceptional prose, that these people are capable of what any human is capable of. The devil, all the time, is brutal and vulgar, but never puerile. It made me squirm, laugh, and I found myself repelled and attracted to its many personalities. Pollock's great talent is not to create mere pulp, but to depict the underbelly of our humanity in such a compelling manner that we willfully enter and relish the gargoyleishness of the human story. You've been listening to Writer's Talk from the Center for the Study and Teaching of Writing at The Ohio State University with guest hosts Nicole Kraft and Ben Glass and our guest Judy Muller. Writer's Talk is a co-production between CSTW and The Ohio Channel where you can watch some of our interviews either at www.ohiochannel.org or by checking your local television listings for broadcast times. For signed books and interview DVDs of select Writer's Talk guests, visit the Writer's Talk section of the Ohio State University Bookstore. Join us next week for guest interviewer OSU student Jenny Patton, who will speak with Jack Hart, author of StoryCraft, about his recommendations for structuring narrative fiction. Until then, this is Doug Dangler from Ohio State. Keep writing. Keep writing.